This is Jonathan Friedland standing in for Jason Solomons for this month's Sounds Jewish. We're celebrating a diamond jubilee. Plenty of adoring crowds, dazzling jewellery, celebrities, sadly no bunting. No, not that diamond jubilee. It's Jewish Book Week's 60th anniversary, 60 years of celebrating Jewish literature. Jewish Book Week has become a fixed point in the British arts calendar. It's now the largest literary festival in London. Draws a huge number of acclaimed writers and performers from all over the world. On the podcast this month, Shalom Auslander discussing his latest book and first novel, Hope, a Tragedy, whose hero flees to upstate New York only to find an elderly and foul-mouthed Anne Frank hiding in his attic. Israel's Etgar Keret talking about his new collection of short stories, Suddenly a Knock on the Door. And Sounds Jewish favourite David Schneider with his My Son, the Gold Medalist, a short history of the Jews and the Olympics. Probably a very short history. And following the phenomenon of the six-word memoir created by Larry Smith, who'll be coming to Jewish Book Week later on in the week, we'll be asking people to sum up their life in six words. Here's my life right now. Here's Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. It's a change of scene this year. For the first time, Jewish Book Week is here in King's Place near King's Cross. It's also the home of The Guardian, so very handy for me. Uh, But usually this place, King's Place, is a venue for music. But for the eight days of Jewish Book Week, it's been turned over to every room, uh, is hosting writers, sharing coffee with the public, people browsing through books. This room has been turned into a library, huge stacks of it done by subject, religion, history, current affairs, speakers, a whole lot of books written by people who are here at Jewish Book Week. And in the throng here are all the people who've come to Jewish Book Week, many of them regulars. What does Jewish Book Week mean to them? Jewish Book Week to me is a chance to see some absolutely incredible, uh, I want to say writers, but the irony is it's not just writers in the Book Week. I think the highlight for me so far was Ron Arad, the designer, Um, but just a chance to come to one place every afternoon, every evening, and just see an incredible array of people talking on an incredible array of subjects. Some of them were funny, some of them were thought-provoking, most of them were amusing, and I've ended up spending way too much money on books. Oh, like the variety of books that are all in one place that I might not have come across before. I like the atmosphere and I like the talks. Here to see David Schneider's talk about um, my son, the Olympic medalist, which sounds great fun. Why do I like coming to Jewish Book Week? Uh, well, it just gives you um, a different perspective um, and gives you, keeps you in touch with things that are going on. I think it is identifying with my culture. Um, I think there's that, but um, I, I am very selective, so I, I, I look for something that I'm interested in, and this year it was Ed of Kerit, so I'm trying to navigate my way through his uh, wonderful uh, kaleidoscope of um, uh, storytelling. It's wonderful, it's very original, and um, very Israeli. I connect with a lot of it, very, very personal. <laughs> We've come away from the bustle and noise of Jewish Book Week, come into one of the little holding rooms here where we've lured really one of the stars of the week's festival. It is Shalom Auslander, born in New York, a writer, memoirist. His memoir, Foreskin's Lament, won huge plaudits everywhere. But now, Shalom Auslander, it's your third book and it's a novel, your first novel. Why the wait? I don't know that I waited. I think that I had to, I, I think in writing short stories, 
I realized that I had to get out some other stuff before I could move on, and and the other stuff was was going to be nonfiction, one way or the other. Because people read into this always with all fiction, they assume that the protagonist Solomon Kugel here is really you, etc. But you felt that you'd got the kind of personal, your own story, out of your system with the memoir, and that freed you for this book. Yeah, and this this you know this feeds into or taps into. Um, the sort of fears I was raised with. And um, so as a father my, of two kids, you know, it, that's what this book was, is a way of my answering, well, I dragged you into this shitty world. <laughs> and um, based on what I was taught and told, um, you're fucked. So have a nice day at school, kids. I'll pick you up later. And I had to find a way to uh, reconcile uh, what I was told was my fate and with this notion of sort of contrary notion of hope. Now, you were talking about the fears, and everybody grows up with fears. There are some specifically Jewish fears that you wrestle with in the earlier book and in this book. Um, Partly, you grew up in a strictly orthodox background. The Holocaust features very, looms very large in this book. Just tell us what are the fears you felt that you wanted to at least grapple with in this novel? Well, I don't don't know that they're specifically Jewish. I know that the the details are specifically Jewish. For me, it was, um, what do you do with history? I was taught from a very young age that um, they would say never again, but it was clear they meant again and worse and tomorrow (laughs) and that it was not going to be a long time before the next one. Um, But we'll keep saying never again, even though we don't believe it. And so what for me, it was just what am I supposed to do with that? And they're telling me this, by the way, at a very, very young age um, six, seven years old, they're taking us into the school auditorium on Holocaust Memorial Day. And you walk in, and uh, there's a giant screen, and the projected image on the screen is this little girl who I already know at that age is dead in a very bad way. Are we speaking about Anne Frank? And this is Anne Frank. And um, I just know that for me, there's a big struggle with how do I reconcile that? Uh, from a practical point of view, I think they made a huge mistake because I know I'm not the only one who, by 18, 20 years old, Jewish or otherwise, uh, doesn't want to hear about it anymore. Um, and so it was the last thing I would have thought I'd write about. And it was actually the last element of the book to come into it. I like sinning, and the biggest sin in fiction is to say <laughs> hope is the bad thing. <laughs> um, uh, and not just the biggest sin in, in fiction, it's a sin in life and in politics, yeah, isn't it? And everywhere, and, and I'm American, but that's, that's really bad. Um, but it was a good question. If, if your fate is either preordained by God or preordained because people suck, what's hope's purpose? Is it a lie to get you through the night? Is it, does it make things worse? Um, there's a strong argument to be made, and it's made in the book by one of the characters, that it does make things worse. And perhaps uh, we need to, uh, to live longer and happier. We should hope a little bit less. Uh, and so that was the th- that was Anne Frank came into it simply because I had this character and I wanted to throw as much shitism as I could. And if you move to the country to start over, what would be the worst thing to do? That would just ruin your dreams of starting over. Well... It would be Anne Frank in your attic. Because our character is wanting to escape history, and there is history right there in, under the same roof. Yeah. I, I want to stay with this question particularly of Anne Frank and, 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 the, and the question of sort of taste, whether it inhibited you at all, knowing that there will be some readers who would really have a very 
pro visceral reaction to the notion of claiming in through fiction that Anne Frank has survived, that she is a sort of old crone who's foul-mouthed, foul-tempered. I mean, Anne Frank does have an almost sacred status for, for Jews particularly. And to, what was going on in your mind with that artistic decision? And did you have any kind of fear about how people would react to that? Well, uh, artistic might be an overstatement. <laughs> um, look, you know, I forget who it was who said it, but uh, sacred cows make the best burgers. And so it's kind of, uh, for me, it's just fun to do that. I grew up with a lot of sacred everything, and so uh, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, befoul everything before I leave. I don't even if I have eighty years left, it's not enough time. But people get that if you, you know, move to atheism and you want to slaughter re religiously sacred yeah. cows. But people will feel that the you know this isn't a question: Do you believe in the Holocaust or not? In the way that you believe in God or not? Here's a you know a traumatic event in Jewish history, and people will say you're making light of really perhaps in some ways the best known victim of the Holocaust. Inevitably, you're making light of the Holocaust itself. Well. Um, I don't, you know, those people I don't particularly care about. To be honest, it's it's, it's a weird thing, and I'm sure you know this, but you, you spend however many years sitting and writing a book and telling yourself you don't give a shit what anybody thinks, and you have to spend four months pretending you give a shit what people think. And I don't really. I wrote because it makes me laugh. The idea of what of, of of first of all a character whose flaw is hope made me laugh. Secondly, writing this professor who says these crazy things, but sounds pretty plausible makes me laugh. And he's arguing that hope is uh, the worst, the biggest cause of misery. And as far as Anne Frank goes, um, look, the, the truth is, I, I disliked her intensely before I started the book. And I, I really like her afterward. I kind of think she's cool. She's, what I was taught was a pathetic little girl who died. She was anything but pathetic. She was incredibly strong-willed. She fought with her mother, which is always a good thing. She sent out her own diary to be published. It wasn't an accident entirely. She wanted big things. She was not going to be a quiet little Jewish girl. And when I thought about what she might be like if she survived, she would want to continue writing. She'd have this big bear of 32 million copy book before that, and she wouldn't take fools lightly. I think she'd be the kind of person in the book that she was, and I, I really dig her. <laughs> I think if if the point of all this Holocaust education is never forget, um, I think we have to ask a second question on that, which is in, in what way are we remembering? Because for me, it's never forget that you're a victim. Never forget that you suffer. Um, I was invited to do a reading in New York, uh, in New York for the last book, and the invitation came from the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And I said, well, sure, okay, I don't mind. I'll go to a museum. And I get down there, and it's a fucking Holocaust museum. And I was livid, first of all, for being tricked into a Holocaust museum. But secondly, that's our heritage? The, the Holocaust? Mer what, that's all we have to offer? What about Woody Allen? I mean, just nothing, just Kafka, nothing? There's nothing else? And I was like, that's what we're teaching our kids, our heritage is? Where, where you're born with a target on your back. So I, I think that, there's, that if there's an issue with never speak about Anne Frank, um, then we're running into a brick wall, and I don't think there's anything you can't speak about. Um, but as she says in the book, uh, Jesus was a Jew, but I'm the Jewish Jesus. I think you can talk about Jesus. I think you can fuck with Jesus a little bit if it's going to reveal things in a better way about him and about what he spoke about. Shalom Aslander, thank you very much. Thank you.
My six words are, uh, oh, fuck, my mother was right. Now, the thing about King's Place is it's full of very large, tall, airy exhibition spaces, and it's always full of new and interesting modern art and sculpture. But there in the centre for Jewish Book Week is a new piece. It's a tall column that from above makes the shape of a Star of David, and it consists entirely of books deliberately opened at a specific point. People now, as I'm watching, are going up and just seeing what books make up this huge stack. Earlier, Sarah Peters caught up with the artist behind the sculpture, Willow Winston. Nearly 200 of the books come from my grandfather's library. Uh, There's a lot of books, actually, uh, which are over 100 years old in the structure. Some of them are things like machsors, you know, prayer books for the various festivals. There's also the five books of Moses, as there are five towers to create the structure. So uh, the, the basic Jewish books, which are like the cornerstone of what we Jews are, I suppose, are there. But they're put, in, they're put into special places. The Psalms are in the top right-hand corner because I think that really is something which has been given to the whole world and is used in the whole world um, by, by many peoples. Great poetry. Is the idea that people walk up to the sculpture and, and touch them, pull out any of the, the books? You can't pull the books out, or if you do, you'll ruin them. They are tied in very firmly, but they are open for reading you can read you know and if you just run your hand lightly along the leaves of the books it's like touching feathers so it's very soft whereas the inside there's the crystalline structure um, of the the six-pointed star which you're standing inside which of course works from various levels as you go down the escalators at king's place yes um the the top of the structure uh, of course became very important because it can be viewed and is viewed possibly more than any other part in some ways and it has an alchemical content insofar as the roofs of the five towers are made with lead and the border of the star itself is made with 22 karat gold so that you have that alchemical transfer or transformation rather from lead into gold and the lead which is a wonderful material to work with um, I hope that it suggests the parting of the waters like the original creation the opening out therefore into the creation and what we are I'm in the green room with Etgar Keret, one of Israel's leading new generation of writers, short storytellers. And Etgar Keret, you've got a new collection out called Suddenly a Knock on the Door. Suddenly a Knock on the Door. Tell me a story, the bearded man sitting on my living room sofa commands. The situation, I must say, is anything but pleasant. I'm someone who writes stories, not someone who tells them. And even that isn't something I do on demand. The last time anyone asked me to tell him a story, it was my son. That was a year ago. I told him something about a fairy and a ferret. I I don't even remember what exactly, and within two minutes he was fast asleep. But this situation is fundamentally different, because my son doesn't have a beard or a pistol, because my son asked for the story nicely, and this man is simply trying to rob me of it. 
Edgar Kerrett, welcome to Sounds Jewish. Uh, we're here at Jewish Book Week, and your new book of short stories, Suddenly a Knock on the Door. It f- includes there a quotation from perhaps, in some ways, Israel's best-known writer, Amos Oz. It says, Edgar Kerrett's short stories are fierce, funny, full of energy and insight, and at the same time often a deep, tragic, and very moving. Um, Oz always says that the trouble with being an Israeli writer is that everybody wants you to be some kind of prophet about Israel and everyone assumes that all these fictional stories you tell are really parables about Israel. Uh, is that been your experience too, that people expect your stories to be telling them something about the country you're from? Uh, well, I think that, you know, we, that I'm a little bit kind of, they excuse me from that, you know, because maybe it's from a different, I'm from a different generation, maybe because I kind of writing different styles, and they know that they won't learn much from me. So they just let me be. Because the stories are often described as quite surreal, and therefore, the, you know, is that almost deliberate, so that people won't take them literally as little vignettes, little sketches of contemporary Israeli life? Well, you know, the, let's say if you, you read my latest collections, and there are suicide bombers, there, there are uh, widowers who lost uh, their... Husbands in the army. There are many of those ingredients that that you kind of see in CNN or in Fox News about the Middle East. But uh, I think that the context those things are in is uh, completely different. So, so I think the bottom line, I, I'm t- trying much more to tell some sort of kind of a a personal or human stories and the story of a nation. And is there? Do you think? Can you detect running through it? Um, a Jewish sensibility to your stories, do you think? Well, I must say that uh, I see myself primarily a Jewish writer, much more than I see myself an Israeli writer. Uh, the strongest influ- influences I've had as a writer were from writers like uh, Kafka or Bashevi Singer or Shalom Aleichem, Isaac Babel, all diaspora Jewish writers. Uh, for one thing, Israeli writers are amazing, but uh, they're usually not funny. And uh, I, all my life, I kind of used humor as some sort of an antidote to life and what it brought to to my doorstep. So, so I feel very much connected to my Jewish identity. It's very funny you mention that because one of the things that Jews often feel, diaspora Jews going to Israel, that's the big difference between Israeli Jews and Jews from outside Israel is humor. And that, you know, a Woody Allen film from the 1970s gets people creasing up in New York and in Israel the audience will sit there not getting it, you know. Now, what, why has that come about? Why do, is, did Jewish humor not seem to make it to Israel? Because I think Jewish humor is uh, very reflexive, and the diaspora Jew always had two identities. If you were, were a, a, a Jewish person living in England, you were both English and Jewish. So when you looked at the English people, you could look at them from the pedestal of kind of Jewish identity and say those Brits are crazy. And when you looked at your, the guys at the synagogue, you could make a joke at them and saying those Jews are crazy and say that as a Brit, you know. So, so this kind of two-tier thinking was something that was lost in the country of the Jews where being a Jew and being Israeli became synonymous. I think that you can say many great things about Israel, but certainly we are not reflexive. You know, we're in there, we have strong army, we have a thriving high-tech industry, but we never see ourselves. We don't have this kind of insider-outsider status that the diaspora Jews always had. With me... I, I once said that I feel like I'm a Jew in the diaspora of Israel, 
in that sense that uh, my parents were both Holocaust survivors. And when we would go outside, they would pretend to be sabras. They would uh, not, not, they wouldn't lie, but it was a, a point not, not to speak in a Polish accent, you know. They never, they would never uh, read a, a book that it wasn't in Hebrew outside of the house. But inside, my mother would uh, recite to me like two beam poems, you know, that she re- remembered from being a child in Poland. So this kind of, uh, this double identity was kind of kept in my life. Well, they're obviously building the set, drilling away there for the adaptation of your short stories, which will no doubt be uh, adapted for the stage very soon. I'm, I'm interested in something going on among your fellow Israeli writers, which is a whole lot of writers of your generation not writing uh, for the printed page, but writing for television. And there is this golden age of Israeli television going on, these dramas, uh, Srugim, the one about religious life, yeah. talked about that on this program before, and the uh, show that has now been, it was Prisoners of of war in Israel and become homeland on American TV. And one of the TV executives said that, you know, whatever else Israel has uh, in short supply, it has an abundance of stories. And that's why it's shipping out all these TV programs to the rest of the world. What do you think is going on in Israel that explains this sudden, very fertile period of creativity? Well, I think that, you know, that, that, that arts were always uh, big and great in Israel. And, and I agree with the fact that, you know, that Israel is a very good place for a storyteller because stories are always about uh, diversity and conflict and some sense of urgency and you can find all of these in Israel and the fact that people came from different uh, diasporas. I often say that if you want to come to Israel you know you you have to have you must have a good story or they won't let you pass the, the passport control so every person that you meet it doesn't matter if he's from Argent- uh, Argentina or Ireland or France they they always come with their baggage and stories and this kind of fusion creates uh, wonderful stories. So no iron, no oil, no diamonds in the ground, but plenty of stories. Edgar Kerrett, thank you very much. Thank you. My sixth words memoir actually only had five words. It could have been better. We'll also hear in the Jewish Book Week temporary library in King's Place, sandwiched between the fiction and the cookery sections, we find Eleanor Green, drama producer with wall-to-wall television, among other things. What are you coming to see here at Jewish Book Week, Eleanor? I've just been to see the Edgar Carrot short stories discussion with Tim Samuels. I'm coming back on Saturday night for the Six Word Memoirs with Larry Smith. Um, generally just soaking up the atmosphere. And you're involved in a writing project of your own? I am. I'm involved in um, a Purim Spiel project. Um, it's happening in a couple of weeks' time um, at Cargo on March the 8th. And that's sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London? It is sponsored by the JCC, yes. And for people who don't know about Purim and certainly don't know about a Purim Spiel, I'm not going to force you to do it in six words, but what is your very brief explanation of what that is? Um, it's traditional on Purim to uh, retell the story of Purim. And um, because it happens to fall on International Women's Day, um, a number of women have been asked to write stories about the women in the story of Purim. This was a moment when the Jews were in peril yet again, but it was women who played the crucial part, both on the sort of goody side and the baddie side. Well, it depends on what you count as a baddie, you see. Uh, I personally have written about Vashti, who was the king's first queen, and one night at a party he asks her to dance naked for him, wearing just a crown on her head. She refuses and he banishes her from the kingdom and instead searches for a young Jewish virgin instead. And we are asking people to summarise their entire life in six words, the so-called six-word memoir. Eleanor Green, what's yours? I wish I could resist cake. 
Another one of the writers here at Jewish Book Week, Meg Rossoff, who's the multi-award-winning author of six books, including her most recent, There Is No Dog. Michaela Brumberg, who's the assistant director of Jewish Book Week, caught up with Meg and began by asking her, what about that title? The title, first of all, is based on a joke I heard about 35 years ago about um, a dyslexic atheist walking up and down in front of a church with a sign saying, there is no dog. Um, The idea for the book actually came from my husband. He was listening to a program on Radio 4 about all the people who'd ever played God in the movies. And um, he came kind of storming down to the kitchen where I happened to be. And um, he said, oh, God, why is Hollywood so completely unimaginative? Why is it always some old white guy? You know, why isn't it, you know, a teenage boy? And um, it was one of those real kind of light bulb moments where I thought, right, God is a teenage boy. And because my subject, even more than my audience, is adolescence, um, I could suddenly see all the parallels between that sense, that that grandiosity, you know, the great kind of responsibility for, for creativity, so all of creation. And then I could see also the, the, um, you know, the things that would go terribly wrong if God were actually a teenage boy. For instance, you know, does he spend months and months and months planning creation in order to get it right? No, he waits to the last minute, he studies the night before, if at all, goes in, um, on the first day, and says, uh, yes, um, let there be light, you know. And and so all the things that, you know, he rushes through. So creation done in six days, clearly it's not enough time. Um, So he does some absolutely fantastic things, but he does some completely hopeless, useless things. For instance, um, creating man in his own image. So we're all, you know, a little bit lazy and sex-mad and... um, uh, warmongering, and uh, but you know we're quite creative. We have moments of absolute greatness. Um, so it's very much a mixed bag. And of course, you know, being a bit sex mad, he, he falls in love with the most beautiful earthling that he can find, and forgets that he's fallen in love a million times before. Which of course is another very human characteristic. So I sort of took humanity and almost worked backwards to create God. For me, this sounds like quite a Jewish concept and, uh, and the idea of questioning and not necessarily believing that there is one or, or, or just throwing questions at the idea of what God is. But um, I hear that it's uh, courted some controversy. Well, you know, the funny thing is I thought uh, that it would get me into serious trouble in America when it came out there and that it would pass by in England, you know, without anybody blinking. But Oddly, so far, it's been exactly the opposite. And I've just come from an American tour where I was talking to kind of... uh, Well, I did a radio tour. I was talking to, you know, gospel stations in the middle of Texas. And it turned out fine. And, And all the people I talked to seemed really interested. And, you know... You just never know what's going to happen with books. But this has really taken me by surprise, that in a funny way, America seems to be embracing it um, in, a, in a bigger way. You once said that you, uh, you thought that your books were quite Jewish, even though they're not overtly Jewish. Can you elaborate on that? Not just this one, but the others as well. Yes, they're certainly not overtly uh, Jewish, but... You know, I've got the wandering Jew in every book, and um, you know the the idea of the of the journey, and also of the the intellectual journey, which I always think is is terribly 
Jewish, really. Um, and the questioners, you know, I'm writing a book now where the, the father is a, a translator and he calls, he's a Portuguese translator, he calls his daughter Pergundador, which in Portuguese is, is a questioner. And, you know, I always think of the four questions. You know, the, the questioner is a very Jewish concept rather than a particularly Christian concept. Meg Rossoff talking to Michaela Brunberg. And Meg Rossoff will be appearing at Jewish Book Week with the celebrated author Bernard Copps on Sunday the 26th of February, discussing literature aimed at teenagers. See the Jewish Book Week website for more details. So David Schneider, you're limbering up for your performance in My Son, the Gold Medalist. You're actually in costume, in yes. the tracksuit there, and you're calling it a short history of the Jews in the Olympics. Should we be offended? Surely it's a very big history. We're wonderful, heroic sports people. Well, it does sound like a very short history. What is there's, there's, there's Mark Spitz and there's that bloke from Chariots of Fire, and it wasn't even him that complained about Shabbos, was it? it was, he didn't it was even the know that. Christian. It was the or, yeah, the Christian. Can you have a bit more contempt? In that? Yeah, it was uh, Lidl. Um, uh, no, who then went on to found a supermarket. Um, but you can see, I'm just before the show, so like, yeah, 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 it's going to be very painful. I'm going to read Frank Carson. Um, it's going to be a tribute. I'm, this, this interview is going to be a tribute to Frank Carson because I'm sort of in pre-show mode, so it's irritatingly funny. <laughs> Irritatingly upbeat. What is it about Jews and sports? Because you look at Israel, they're very fit, muscled kind of people. Jews should be good at sports, no? Well, that's right. That's the weird thing. As part of the research for this, I looked at um, the Olympic medal tables from Beijing, and uh, and Israel got a Gunter bronze, one bronze. It's like a whole bronze. And you'd think that's all macho. And, I mean, the bronze was in windsurfing, which anyway, it's basically, they, they come out of the womb on a windsurf thing, don't they? Um, so that's, that's no big deal. They didn't do it. Maybe they do uh, I can't be bothered. There are women here. Uh, you know, I don't know the distraction, but you'd think, go for it, for heaven's sake. I mean, they're down there, honestly. They're down there with Togo, Mauritius, Afghanistan. I mean, what sort of sporting infrastructure did they have in 2008? And still they're better than the Jews, and yet Jews love no, sport. No, now that's, that's the interesting thing that I found, that if you look at the Jewish medalists from the Beijing Olympics, we actually won five golds, seven bronze, and uh, seven, no, five golds, seven silvers, and four bronze. And if you put us, this is, I'm basically doing the show, but if, if you put us into the medals table, we came 16th. We beat Ethiopia, we beat Canada, Canada, uh, yes, we beat Canada. We gave them a hell of a beating. What are the five golds in? What did Jews get that they get five golds? Good point, good point. Um, well, bizarrely, most of them are swimming relays. Does that count? A relay, first of all, that's not... That's, bring your own gold medal, don't share it. Um, so that's the first thing. That's, and, and also, swimming is such a... To me, it's a very non-Jewish event. Uh, so yes, yeah. I, I, you know what happened when they got to the Red Sea? They didn't go for a swim. When any Jew goes to the sea, he expects God to part it for him. Um, so I, you know, I don't. I, I, I find it weird that any. I, maybe it's autobiographical, but I find it weird that any Jew would swim. So you've told us about all these medals that Jews got. So it's actually a myth that Jews are not good at sport. It should be a very long history of the Jews in the Olympics. We're obviously good at sport. This is all a myth that we have that we're this kind of weedy, nerdy people who can't do physical stuff. Yes, uh, possibly. Although if you if you drill down to use that phrase, let's all drill down into the statistics. Um, there's uh, there seems there's quite, there's quite a lot of suspicious names. As in, there's there's one guy who uh, got a gold medal um, who's called Garrett Weber Hyphen Gale, and you think, okay, Weber maybe, but Gale. Now I I think there's some non-kosher blood. I'm not making moral or religious judgment. I'm just saying scientifically, is that a Jewish gold medal? I mean, he's used 
non-kosher blood to do well in sport. So I think, you know, it's ambiguous. You're implying there that it may be his very non-Jewishness that makes him good at sport, as if somehow if he was just Jewish, he wouldn't be good at sport. Is that fair? I'm not even implying it. I'm saying it. I mean, I mean look at me. I'm, I'm now in a tracksuit. It feels, I mean, I've still got the little label on. It's never going to be used again. Uh, I, just, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Is it a stereotype? I mean, to be serious for a moment, uh, we did win 16 medals. That's pretty good. And there's Mark Spitz. The man's a legend. He won five gold medals or something. Yeah, he was a proper Jew. someone else. I can never make name anyone. You gave me the Harold Abrams before. Yeah. Here's the thing I want to know. Jews love sport. You go to any football match, Spurs, Arsenal, but any of them, Jews are there. They love and they're addicted to sport. They watch all the sport on TV. Why shouldn't they be good at it? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a physical thing. We are, Jews are heading towards Davros status. Davros not being the uh, place where the politicians met, but Davros being the half-human leader of the Daleks, um, who was human from the top, but basically just sat there in his Dalek bottom. And I think uh, that... My theory is that, uh, and I'm making this up as I'm speaking, so it'll be interesting what happens at the end of the sentence, that Jews are basically becoming Davros. Because it's brain, but the body, forget about it. Yeah, yeah, that Davros loved nothing better than sit and watch a League Two game of a Sunday afternoon. I think you're going to have trouble sustaining this thesis. Tell us um, your favourite bit of the play that you're about to perform. What's the big highlight for you? Because not all sport has to have a highlights, match of the day, etc. So what's your highlight that you'd pick out and do on action replay? Well, I think uh, as it is, a, it's, it's not going to work on, uh, on a podcast, but I'm quite proud. I've, I've put together a gymnastics routine that is all with synagogue movements. <laughs> so it's shockling. It's, I mean, and, and so generally it's like post-Matzah constipation. It's all these. So I, I, I want to show how we could win more goals, and I think that routine's going to convince. We just need the events to change, right? We just need a shockling relay. We're exactly. there. Exactly. We need that. We need synchronized fetching. Uh, and that's the sort of thing we, you know, we do really well. We need, um, a f- uh, I'm doing a field event called the guilt trip, where um, you get a Jewish son and put him in a field uh, and then measure at what distance his mum can make him feel guilty. So we'll be doing a bit of that tonight as well. So yeah. That's definitely gold medals all round for that. David Schneider, we need to leave you to limber up for this big uh, sporting event that's coming. Thanks very much. My six-word memoir is, he couldn't have been a doctor? And that's all for this month's special edition of Sounds Jewish at Jewish Book Week. My thanks to all our guests, Edgar Keret, Shalom Auslander, Meg Rossoff and David Schneider. And there's just time for one last plug, my own event in the guise of Sam Bourne on Sunday the 26th, discussing the book Pantheon with David Aronovich. And one last trail for the JCC's first ever listening party on Thursday the 29th of March. It's called Alone Together, recreating the forgotten stories of the standards. March the 29th, you'll find details on the JCC website. Thanks too to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jonathan Friedland, and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye. Shalom, shalom.